Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth. Our speaker today is Dr. Michael Root. He is Professor Emeritus at the Catholic University of America, and um, he is spending his leisure time thinking about death, grace, and judgment. Um, And so, sort of fittingly, he's here to talk to us about purgatory, which he has subtitled Good News for Most of Us. So please welcome Dr. Mike Root. Very happy to be here. it's always good to come into, you were saying, into the city, as uh, I learned to call it when I lived in Connecticut. Um, I did at CUA, Catholic University of America, I taught every year a required course on last things, heaven, hell, purgatory, death, uh, souls, judgment, kingdom of God, antichrist. Uh, you know, this week, hell, next week, death. Or actually, it would be this week, death, next week, hell. Um, so it was a course that was required, and I developed quite an interest in this subject, which is... Uh, for me, at any rate, fascinating. Um, I'm going to go directly into the talk. Uh, I want to cover a relatively large amount of information here uh, because my sense is that in the contemporary Catholic Church, purgatory just isn't talked about that much. Um, it would have been central to Catholic piety at various points in Catholic history, uh, but today it isn't. Henry VII died in 1509, King of England, left money for 5,000 masses to be said for his soul. Uh, because he was hoping it would be in purgatory. Sometimes kings have to do things that don't even get you into purgatory. Um, But there were times this was central, times when also then it got no attention at all. So what I'm going to do today is try and simply give you a certain amount of talk about purgatory, at least to remove the notion that purgatory is a kind of embarrassment, something crudely mythological, something that has to do with punishment, fear, etc., etc. Shouldn't Christianity be a message of joy? Purgatory sounds like too often a message not of joy at all. I'm going to give something of an apologia for the concept of purgatory, something of an argument for it as an important concept. Um, First, I want to talk about where it comes from. I mean, as I'll say, it doesn't sit on the surface of the Bible. How did this concept develop? Second, I want to talk about what is Catholic teaching about purgatory? It may be a good deal less than you think, or more than you think, but it is fairly precise. And third, I want to talk about a way of thinking about purgatory as conformity to Christ. So three steps, development, official Catholic teaching, conformity to Christ. First, we need to be clear. The concept of purgatory cannot be found explicitly in Scripture. I will argue it is implicitly present in the apostolic deposit of the faith. But by deposit of the faith, 
I mean more than just scripture, I mean scripture and traditions that seem to go back to the very beginning of the church. So a somewhat wider notion of, of here what's authoritative, which is the normative Catholic way of talking about it. Here in particular with purgatory, we have to talk about the development of doctrine. Doctrine can develop. What's implicit at one point gets thought through and becomes explicit. The classic example of this is the doctrine of the Trinity, precisely how you think about the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The terms are in the New Testament, but exactly how you think the relation of them. What's the relation of the Son incarnate in Christ to the Father? Are they God in a, the identical sense? That all had to be thought out in ways basically ruled by the New Testament, but not explicitly there. Purgatory is certainly an example where one has to have some concept of the development of dogma, the development of doctrine. Where does the idea come from? The idea of purgatory is rooted in intertestamental pra Jewish practice. Intertestamental meaning between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, second, third century BC. It has roots in that practice. It develops slowly in the West. It's influenced quite a bit by the writings of St. Augustine, writing in the early 5th century, and St. Gregory the Great, Pope, the end of the 6th, beginning of the 7th century. The Latin noun purgatorium, that becomes purgatory, cannot be found until the beginning of the 8th century. Prior to that, you have adjectives, or participles, purging fire, purging punishments, purgative punishments. But the noun purgatory is, in fact, a late development. It first appears in the writings of the Venerable Bede, B-E-D-E, who is writing in Northumbria, far northeast England, which you might think is the edge of the world. Why should his writings have any influence? But remember, Central Europe was reconverted in the 7th and 8th century by missionaries from Ireland and northern England. And it was Bede's commentaries on the Bible that they carried with them. He was a very influential writer of biblical commentaries. So it appears that the idea spread, particularly, or the word, from the venerable Bede. Although the noun purgatory does not come into wide usage until about the year 1000. So the, 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 the word, lexically, so to speak, is relatively recent. Okay. Why did it develop? I would argue you have three roots. A practice, a, a con conviction, and a problem. What is the practice? At the root of the doctrine of purgatory is praying for the dead. In a sense, purgatory is the doctrine comes from thinking through what are we doing when we pray for the dead. Now, it is not the case that at any place in the New Testament do we have a very clear case of somebody praying for the dead. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions, but doesn't discuss, baptizing for the dead. We have no idea what that meant. Paul neither approves nor disapproves of it, but does use it as a positive example. If you look at the first chapter of the second letter to Timothy... Yes, second letter to Timothy, you'll find, is that the right point? Yes. It sounds like Paul is urging people to pray for somebody who has died, somebody named Onesiphorus, but you can't quite tell. 
It seemed to me reading it that he asked people to pray for Onesiphorus, who's done such good things for him. Sounds like, it certainly sounds like he's dead, I think, reading it. But you can't tell for sure. We do know that in the intertestamental period, again, Judaism, after the end of the Old Testament, before the beginning of the New, people did have sacrifices and prayers for the dead. The particular passage here is in 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, which I'm going to come back to, where there were some people who had done a sin. They were wearing pagan amulets under their armor while fighting for the good guys, for, for, for the Lord. Um, so they had done a small sin, a, a sort of cheated, and then sacrifices are offered for them. And we know from other texts, people did pray for the dead in the period of Judaism prior to the coming of Christ. We know that by 200, around give or take, we have catacomb inscriptions in Rome which indicate people were praying for the dead. In addition, we have the writings of St. Tertullian, who was a North African, who speaks of offering masses for the dead. Now, Tertullian was hard-nosed. I mean, Tertullian, you don't, you don't want him on the other side. He's a hard arguer. He did not like new, new things. If praying for the dead, offering the mass for the dead was a new thing, Augustine Tertullian would not have been in favor of it. So we know the practice of praying for the dead and offering the mass for the dead by 200 was relatively well established. We know Jews were praying for the dead before the coming of Christ. Which is more likely, that you had the institution of praying for the dead, the Christians quit doing it and then started doing it again? Or they simply did it all along, but it never reached the level of being talked about in the New Testament? It wasn't a problem. As we'll note, until the Reformation, actually until about the 13th or 14th century, before the Reformation, you have little argument about praying for the dead. Most people took it to be just obvious. I mean, don't you love your mother? You're not going to pray for your mother? Um, it was taken to be fairly clear. So the, the, the basis, what it develops from the doctrine of purgatory is the practice of praying for the dead. But secondly, there's a conviction. The conviction is that the final kingdom, the, to the total rule of God, will be a realm of complete perfection. The completion of all things in their true form. Every tear will be wiped away. No more tears will be shed. Quote, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things that have passed away. And nothing unclean shall enter it. Nor can anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, if the kingdom is a perfect era, a situation of harmony, what must we be like? What about envy? I speak envy because it is the, it is the archetypal professorial sin. Professors, it isn't greed. I mean, I'm not that stupid. I didn't think teaching theology in church institutions was going to make me, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. My mother told me that. She told me I should go to law school. Um, the, it's not other things. It's envy. I mean, you want recognition. Can envy, even if you resist it, that little voice in the back of your head, that when some colleague gets an award and the little voice in the back of your head says, the suck up, that's why they got the award. I mean, I did as much as that. I mean, you, you repress it. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't think that. But you repress it. It's there. It's not sinful. Concupiscence, that's the technical term. Will we be envious? Will we have that voice in the back of our head? 
Even God can get fools to suck up. No, there's going to have to be a transformation in us. Not only the forgiveness of sins, but the transformation of what we've done to ourselves and our sinfulness. If, in fact, we're going to be fit for the kingdom. So that's the conviction. Everybody in in the final kingdom of God must be fully fit for the kingdom. But there's a problem. This is the third part. In the, say, the second century, the early third century, prior to the the conversion of Constantine, uh, you took a risk to be a Christian. Well, persecution was off and on, but it did happen, and people were killed. But now, Constantine converts after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312. Now maybe becoming a Christian is good for your career. Maybe you're going to get that job because you become a Christian. Now, people may not be insincere, but they're not necessarily going to be ready to be a martyr either. You're going to get the middling Christian. Who is sincere? Who, who is charitable? Who does the right thing for the most part? But who maybe isn't quite ready for prime time. Who gets angry now and then. Who has a little too much to drink now and then. Etc., etc. Everybody knows people like this. Uncle Fred, he's a good guy. But, you know, he has his weaknesses two glasses of beer, and he's, you know, you got to kind of watch him, blah, blah, blah. There are such people. It's precisely those, the middling Christians, that say here, Augustine is talking about, this is St. Augustine writing in the City of God. There are, of course, certain souls for whom the prayer either of the church or of some devout individuals is heard. This is not on the handout. These are the souls of those reborn in Christ whose lives in the body are not so evil that they would be reckoned unworthy of mercy, but not so good as to be found not needing mercy. They need mercy, and they've been good enough to merit mercy. They're not complete jerks. They're in the middle, so to speak. And so even after the resurrection of the dead, there will be some who, after enduring the pain suffered, suffered by the spirits of the dead, will be granted mercy and so not be cast into everlasting fire. Now here we have two key notions. You already have an Augustine writing about 415, four, between 415 and 420. Um, there are some not ready for the kingdom who have to undergo some kind of painful transformation described as punishment, and they can be aided by the prayers of the church. That is an assumption rooted here. The prayers of a good man availeth much, says the book of James. The prayers of the church, just as they can help us now, help those in purgatory. Note that here, he joins together the notion of the mercy of God. There are those who deserve mercy, and God will give it to them. But combined with, you have to be transformed to enter the kingdom. You get these basic notions in in St. Augustine. I also mentioned then Gregory the Great. He was pope at the very end of the 7th century, beginning of the 8th, late 600s, early 700s. Gregory the Great um, has a book called The Dialogues. People were saying there are no miracles occurring anymore, so it is a sort of odd collection of miracle stories, including stories of the appearances of the dead. There's a famous story of a local bishop who goes to the baths, and he finds that he has an appearance to him of the previous guy that used to run the baths who says he's being held and being punished beyond death, would this bishop please say a mass for a number of days in a row? 
and it would help him to escape these punishments he has to get into until he can enter heaven. The bishop does this, come back a week later, the guy appears again, and um, sure enough, he's been released. There are these visions and stories that played a role in the development of, of the popular piety at any rate. The notion that stories of people who had a vision, some relatives spoke to them uh, after death, and asked them to pray or have a mass said, and sure enough, it had the, the effect. Um, as I mentioned, you only get a full notion of purgatory with the Venerable Bede about 100 years later, with the notion that what prayers do is release you from present suffering. Note that in Augustine, it was to help you on the last day. But this, the, the idea then changes. Now, one thing I haven't, I should note, one aspect this went with was a far more precise notion of confession. Private confession to a priest that most people, I mean, people who aren't monks would do, develops 6th, 7th, 8th century. It spreads from Ireland, um, where you have the notion that a layperson, like most of us, not the guys in white, uh, would do, uh, was a newer idea. And with the notion, then, that the priest must give a fairly precise and appropriate punishment that would be calibrated to what the sin was. And you had books, penitentiaries, of just what, I mean, if you've committed adultery, you haven't committed adultery, but you thought about it a lot, I mean, then what would be the different penalty? And it's not going to be three Hail Marys and an Our Father. I mean, this is going to be something rather serious. So you get now sort of thinking, what is the precise nature of justice here? And what would be the the, the, the reality, if you haven't completed the penance and then you die. Um, this would be the kind of questions that produce um, the doctrine of purgatory in a more precise sense is a much more precise thinking through and a spreading out of the practice of individual confession. Now, what I've not talked about much here is our biblical texts. Biblical texts play a role, but they did not drive the development it was, again, I think more practices, particularly the practice of prayers for the dead. But certain passages did play a role. I've mentioned Second uh, Maccabees 12, where you had a bunch of Jews. This is the fighting against the Persian oppressors. You have Judas, Maccab Judas Maccabeus, who leads an uprising. The, um, they find after the battle, the good guys win that a number of the Jews who had died were wearing pagan amulets under their shirts. And, that, and the notion is must, this must be why they died. Judas takes up a collection, so he'll send off to Jerusalem and have sacrifice made for them for the last day. Again, the issue here is judgment on the last day. Will they be forgiven on the last day? Because, you know, they died fighting for Israel, but they'd hedge their bets. A rabbit's foot, whatever. Um, that's actually, this becomes an important passage in the Reformation. It did not play such a large role, actually, in the development of the doctrine when you read the Fathers. More important were the passages I've given you on the handout. In particular, 1 Corinthians 13 and Matthew 12. 1 Corinthians 13 reads, according to the grace, this is Paul, according to the race, uh, grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. No, what's shared among all the people talked about here is the foundation in Christ. That's secure. But some people build with cold, silver, precious stones. The fire will test them, and they'll come through fine. Others will have built with wood, hay, straw. That is, with weaker things, things that don't stand the test. Maybe envy's behind why you're doing good work or something. For those, the, these, these faulty works will be burnt away, but they will be saved but as through fire. They will have gotten through, but just with the clothes on their, ba- on their, on their backs. They wouldn't have gotten the stuff out of the house. Now, in context, what Paul is talking about, at least when he starts is that some people found a congregation, some missionary, and then go on, and somebody comes behind them and builds on That is the initial concept, context. It does appear to me, in the passage, and the way the Catholic Church has generally read it, there is a drift here to talking about everybody, about what, what happens in judgment, so to speak, about a distinction between your foundational state, are you in Christ or not, and then what you've done with that, so to speak. The other passage that was important in the development of the doctrine was Matthew 12, 32. The context here is, is there an unforgivable sin? Rather famous question Jesus could ask. He speaks back and then he answers, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. Note the last phrase. This sin will not be forgiven now or in the age to come. Why would Jesus have said that unless some sins might be forgiven in the age to come? Does it follow, so to speak, if you're going to say no word of Scripture is accidental, nothing is said for no reason at all, does it follow that? There must be some sins that are forgiven. Venial sins, perhaps. The sins involved in the wood, hay, and stubble, so to speak. That's the way the idea developed. And actually, in my reading of the church fathers on this question, Matthew 12 is the one that shows up the most. Oddly enough, more than 1 Corinthians 3 or uh, the the famous Maccabees passage. Um, Now, again, that may seem rather odd logic, but it was the logic that that was worked out. My reading of the history, though, however, is that the root of the doctrine had more to do with thinking through praying for the dead, the unity of us, for the, of those alive with the dead, what, why are we praying for the dead, what might prayers do for them. Uh, that was what was foundational. That's then how the doctrine developed. Let me talk a bit about the doctrine. There is very little official Catholic teaching on this. You actually have all of it on that piece of paper. That is the entirety of normative Catholic teaching in purgatory. That's because nobody argued about it. Generally, the church only makes formal doctrine when you have a fight. 
And somebody, a church council, the Pope, has to come in and settle, you know, you, that, that's okay. What you want to say is okay, but you can't say it that way. I mean, I said earlier the issue about the Trinity is the Word of God incarnate in Jesus identical with the Father or sort of, it was, it's God, but you know, not as much God as the Father. Um, what you can't say, it was decided, and I think absolutely correctly, you're either God or you're a creature, one or the other, period. You can't be two-thirds God. It isn't that you have the Father, and then the Son is a little less God, and the Holy Spirit's a little less God than that, and the angels are a little less God than that, and maybe the emperor, he's really close to being God, and then you get nobles, and then you get me, poor schlock, schmuck. I mean, it's not like that. There's God, and there's creatures, period. And you, you can't have semi-gods. I mean, that's where the, because there was an argument. Church intervenes, and the decision is made. There was never an argument about praying for the dead. Only one person in the first thousand years, as far as we know, argued <laughs> against praying for the dead. His name was Arius. This is not the Arius of the Trinitarian controversies. This is A-E-R-I-U-S. He was writing in the late third century, the late 200s in Turkey. He had a whole set of odd ideas. He was against celebrating Christmas, I mean Easter. The celebration of Easter was a Jewish superstition, he thought. Um, he was generally thought to be an all-around oddball and heretic who had scads of bad ideas. Um, so he had no influence. Uh, he's the only person that's ever mentioned as having been against praying for the dead. So you don't have actually thinking about purgatory until the 13th and 14th century when you have contact between the Latin West and now the Orthodox East, particularly following um, the Crusades, so we actually a little early, 12th, 13th century. The doctrine of purgatory developed the popular teaching a lot in the West, and the East did not have any such formal teaching. So you started having discussions uh, back and forth. You had then, this was thought to be an issue that needed to be settled between East and West. And I've given you, on the handout, Council of Florence, 1439. This was part of an agreement between East and West in the hope of uniting the Orthodox with the Catholics. If truly penitent people die in the love of God before they have made satisfaction for acts and omissions by worthy fruits of repentance, their souls are cleansed after death by cleansing pains, and the suffrages of the living faithful avail them in giving relief from such pains that is, sacrifice of masses, prayers, almsgiving, and other acts of devotion, which have customarily performed by some of the faithful for others of the faithful, in accordance with the church's ordinances. Note what isn't there. The word purgatory isn't there. The word fire isn't there. Nothing about fires of purgatory. All it said is that some people still owe something, so to speak. Even though they've been forgiven, the eternal punishment taken away, there are consequences of their sins that must be faced. Sometimes I get, you run into problems with that, Protestants, didn't Jesus do enough? But stop and think about it. Let's say, that this is, I'm not making confession here, this is not my sin. Let's say I commit adultery. And let's say my endlessly forgiving wife forgives me. Do I then say, okay, she's forgiven me, it all goes back to perfectly normal, right? No, that's not the way it works. Sins have consequences. They have consequences on me. Perhaps they have consequences on her. They have consequences in our relationship. And those have to be ad addressed at some point. You've got to deal with them. 
And that's one way of understanding what we mean by temporal punishment. Let's, I mean, let's say I'm uh, addicted to internet pornography or something. That has an effect on me that must be addressed. Uh, I have to deal with it, so to speak. That's the ongoing temporal punishment. I may be forgiven. I may confess in mass. I may be doing my best to deal with it. Perhaps I do deal with it. But you have to, it has effects. And those have to be addressed, so to speak. Dealt with, perhaps painfully. That's all that's, that's one way of understanding what's saying, as it said in the, in the council. All it says is, there may be satisfactions, punishments to be faced following death, and the masses, prayers, and almsgiving of the church can help. That's all it says. Note the Council of Trent. This became an issue in purgatory. I've given you there the Council of Trent. I'm not going to read it. Running a little long here. It's the same thing. All it says is, is there is a purgatory. Here they use the word, but they don't say anything about what it is. And that our masses, prayers, and almsgiving can help people in the situation. That is it. That is all it says. Now, there's a reason for this. I dare say all of you have been in meetings or, you know, company retreats, and you have this long agenda of things to do in two days, and it gets to be 3 o'clock on the second day, and you're only halfway through the agenda, so you deal with things that really ought to be dealt with longer in five minutes. Um, this happens all the time, and in fact, at the Council of Trent, they were just running out of time, and they dealt with, you know, this is lickety-split, let's finish it, we got to be out of here, because the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of France wanted it done. You know, we're going to be finished, we're going to be out of here, and so this is all they did. They simply, basically repeated what was in the Council of Florence. I've given you the only other reference. This was from the same Council of Trent earlier. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the death of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged, either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be, be anathema. That's just the point. There may be temporal punishments. We can talk about that a bit. Um, my, this is what we're talking about acts of consequences, um, which have to be dealt with. You have now read all of Catholic dogma on purgatory. That's it. There is nothing else. What you've got is a very skeletal official normative teaching, which popular piety has done a whole lot, so to speak, because it hasn't been, because it hasn't been controversial. And so you don't get an official Catholic teaching on the subject. Uh, that's what um, has tended to happen. Now, the, in the Reformation in particular, because, and we can, I can talk about this a bit if you're interested, I'm not going to say much about it if we don't have time, uh, because the, the doctrine of purgatory was bound up in particularly with indulgences, that is, you could do a work, a good work. A good work might even be a monetary contribution to a good cause. Uh, this will get you yourself out of certain penances. For example, we know in the early Middle Ages, let's say the Baker's Guild in a small town would tell the bishop, we'll do a good work, we'll, build, we'll, we'll repair the bridge into town, and we will get to eat meat and lint, right? They said, yeah, sure, it's an indulgence. An indulgence is you get out of a penitential practice by substituting for it some good deed. Or the prayers. In fact, the earliest thing we know about indulgences was cases of people who had perhaps handed over the books of the church when the Romans were doing persecution. Uh, that, that was a big deal. And you, I mean, you would be, your penance would take years. You would have to, for example, you would have to lay flat on your uh, stomach on the church 
uh, still have everybody step over you every Sunday for five years as humiliation, unless somebody else, let's say, let's say I'm a good guy, I risked, I mean, I refused to hand over the books, I was, I was at the risk of martyrdom, I was willing to face martyrdom, what if I go and pray with this person that handed over the books? Again, the prayers of a good man availeth much. My praying for them can help them. But what about the prayers of the whole church, prayers of the saints in heaven, even the prayers of Jesus and his humanity? Can the church call upon the prayers of the church even in heaven? That's where indulgences come, and people start asking, can I, can I have this indulgence applied to Uncle Fred, whom I hope made it into purgatory, but if he did, he's going to be there a long time. Um, and you started getting, in fact, lay requests. It isn't actually until just before the Reformation you get an official teaching that, that allows indulgences to pl- apply to someone in purgatory. I can talk about that some more. Um, the Reformation did grant that you need to be purged. The question was, what does the transformation? What, did, what, what transforms a person into the sort of, you know, they have faith, but it, they're working at it, not ready for prime time. What changes them to being ready for heaven? Death. That was the standard answer, or death and resurrection. In Romans 7, Paul says, I got the right page here, who will deliver, um, excuse me, Romans 7, Paul bemoans that the good he wishes to do, he doesn't do, the evil he doesn't wish to do, he does do, and ends, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, death delivers you from this body of death. But note what follows then. If we're transformed entirely at death, we are in a certain sense not engaged. We are simply passive. Death is infamously something that happens to you. You can do it to yourself, but death, you really, death happens to you uh, in a certain We are passive in dying. So if that's the case, if transformation occurs without our being involved, we're not acting responsible agents in that transformation. It, so to speak, falls on us. The Catholic intuition about purgatory is that the transformation of the self beyond death, must be something like penitence. The self's engagement with its own deficiencies in thought and deed. I mean, if I am constantly envious and backbiting and I recognize this, I've got to deal with it. It's precisely my engagement as a self. That isn't to say grace doesn't help me do that, but I must be engaged. As Augustine said, God creates us without us, but God does not redeem us without us. God respects the nature of what he created. He created us as responsible, accountable beings, deals with us that way in this life, and even in the next life will engage us as human beings. I will have to face what I have done, um, even beyond death, if I have not faced it in this life. So the process of transformation is one that will engage you as a person. And sometimes that has to be sequential. Perhaps facing one failing of myself, I've got to face this failing A before I can face failing B, or really get at the root of what my issues are. That process might have to be sequential, which means it's in something like time. Now, time in purgatory may be radically different. 
Time and death, time beyond death may be radically different, but it still seems to me there has to be time. If you have first this and then that, you've got something like time. And note, you have a sort of a space where our prayers can enter and help. Um, the crucial difference, I think, here between Protestant and Catholic understandings here is whether the transformation can simply happen to you from the outside and you're entirely passive, or whether there must be an engagement of the self in that process, which others can help you with. A crucial point for understanding purgatory was the continuity between purgatory and penance. Penance is purgatory in this life. Purgatory is penance in the next life. But there's a continuity. Catherine of Genoa, a great mystic of the late Middle Ages, about 1500, particularly thinks through the continuity of penance and purgatory. It's one process. Um, leading on. Now, actually, you've had in the last 30 years a number of Protestants who started to think in the same way, that you do need a kind of engagement. On the handout on the back, you'll see an article in First Things. You can download it if you're interested by Jerry Walls, a Methodist who has thought about purgatory and thinks you really do need some sort of ongoing process. Last part of the topic, and I do this fairly quickly because I run a little long, is to talk about conformity to Christ. So far, have I really said why purgatory might be good news for most of us? Particularly the images of hell made a large difference. Historians talk about the infernalization of purgatory. Purgatory tended in the late antique, early medieval period to become hell with a time limit. It's hell, but you get out after a while. Um, Which is not necessarily what was broadly speaking, it's not what you find in the Fathers. It's not what you find in someone like Catherine of Genoa. Catherine of Genoa said, purgatory will be the second best thing in life next to heaven. Because every moment in purgatory, you know you're coming closer to God. You're always moving toward heaven in purgatory. And so she thought purgatory would be joyful. Uh, now, she's just sort of one of these intense medieval mystics that... Uh, she may be a great saint, but I'm not sure I want a beer with her on Friday night. Um, um, but the notion here was um, the, that it was positive in a certain sense. And there was this infernalization, which came interestingly from particularly what we now call near-death experiences. Of people having a near-death experience and coming back. I got a tour of hell. Uh, the very top level of hell was purgatory. There's a famous one, in fact, written down by the Venerable Bede. It's interesting... Near-death experiences today are almost always positive. You know, I saw a warm light and it was welcoming. Most medieval near-death experiences were negative. And, I mean, it was scaring you into being good uh, by the near-death experience. It is interesting. Uh, perhaps people are having negative near-death experiences and they're not talking about them. You know, gee, I found out I had a near-death experience and I found out I'm a total jerk. <laughs> you know, you may not publicize that the same way. You know, I have these warm, fuzzy feelings of a bright light, etc. But what if we think of purgatory a different way? What if we think of purgatory as a part of our being conformed to Christ? What if purgatory is finally taking me and the envy in the back of my head and, and removing that so I am more Christ-like? Can we understand purgatory as that process in which I'm engaged, in which I have to face my unChrist-like ways, which may be painful? When we understand purgatory as being shaped finally into conformity with Christ. If you look on the back, 
of the handout. This is from an encyclical by Pope Benedict from 2007. It was his first encyclical, Space Salvi, uh, Saved by Hope. And he says this about purgatory. It's on last things. This is the, the, the one paragraph on purgatory. Some recent theologians are of the opinion. Now, that's an inside joke. The, the recent theologian who's of this opinion is himself. <laughs> but he's not. It's him and his sort of pre-papal self, so to speak. Some recent theologians are of the opinion that the fire which both burns and saves in 1 Corinthians 3 is Christ himself the judge and savior. The encounter with him is the decisive act of judgment. Before his gaze, all falsehood melts away. This encounter with him as it burns us, transforms and frees us, allowing us to become truly ourselves. All that we build during our lives can prove to be mere straw, pure bluster, and it collapses. Yet in the pain of this encounter, when the impurity and sickness of our lives become evident to us, there lies salvation. His gaze, that is Christ's, the touch of his heart, heals us through an undeniably painful transformation as through fire. But it is a blessed pain in which the holy power of his love sears through us like a flame, enabling us to become totally ourselves and thus totally God, of God. In this way, the interrelation between justice and grace also becomes clear. The way we are, live our lives is not immaterial, but our defilement does not stain us forever. If we have at least continued to reach out toward the Christ, towards Christ, towards truth and towards love. Indeed, it has already been burned away through Christ's passion. At the moment of judgment, we experience and we absorb the overwhelming power of his love over all the evil in the world and in ourselves. The pain of love becomes our salvation and our joy. Now that is something to look forward to, that despite our miscellaneous failings, in fact, we will be made ready for the kingdom. We will have the wedding robe that we need on. Purgatory is in this sense then the last stage of dying and rising with Christ, the last stage of true conformity with Christ, putting off the old man of sin and putting on the new reality of Christ, a process begun decisively in baptism continued throughout our lives and completed before we enter the final kingdom on the last day. As we look forward to the future God has in store for us then, purgatory is an important sign that grace will get us there, so to speak, even if our cooperation with grace is always less than perfect. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'll try. Okay, good. The question is uh, to say something about the relationship between the East and the West, the Orthodox and Catholics on this subject. Would, would a Catholic who became Orthodox have to abjure the doctrine of purgatory, etc.? This is, I did, I've spent most of my career doing ecumenical work, and one of the hardest situations is when you get a basic asymmetry where one side thinks, oh, this is an easy topic. We can clear this one up easy. And the other side, no, 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 this is really important, where the issue is precisely how important the issue is. It is typical of most Catholics, theologians in the last hundred years, to think this issue can be settled easily. What matters is prayer for the dead and belief that the prayer for the dead does something 
and that there's some kind of taking account of one's venial sins, of how you lived your life beyond death. That the Orthodox don't deny. What they'll deny is, in particular, the, the word fire. The worry that the Orthodox, the reason why, for example, in the Council of Florence, you don't have the word fire, is the overtone of a theologian who is much more influential in the East than the West, which is Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. Origen was a great theologian of the third century, maybe one of the greatest minds, particularly the Eastern tradition, but at least at times he was a universalist. The fire will purge everyone. It is saving in and of itself. So there was a tendency in the, in the East to think the West is creeping, is becoming creepingly universalist, which is odd because you get find out far more universalist theologians of the Orthodox than in the West, but that's the way it went. Um, the East, you do, the crucial point becomes, and this is the point with Protestants, partially the East will get very worried about the language of temporal punishments, that there are punishments to be faced. Both the Orthodox and the Protestants will say, well, does, didn't Christ take away all punishments on the cross? That's the argument. Now, I tried to argue back the other way, so to speak, by using a certain kind of analogy, not uncommon in, in Catholic theology, of the consequences of a deed. That if I am, let's say, again, this is not my sin, if I'm addicted to internet pornography, that has an effect upon me, and I have to deal with that, even if it's forgiven. Can you use the word punishment for that? The painful process of coming to terms with my addiction. Is that a punishment? A lot depends on how you define punishment. So the Orthodox, you, you'll get a variety of opinions among this in the Orthodox. You will get some who will think this is absolutely horrible and you would have to abjure it. You have to reject the Western concept. You'll get some who won't think it's important. There's a tendency in the West, even Pope Benedict thought, as long as there's no issue here, he thought, as long as they pray for the dead and think the prayers do something, there's no issue at stake. So it's a difficult issue here where the West tends to think the issue is, is easily settled, and at least some of these think it isn't. The question was, I mean, could you, could, could you, if it's an ongoing state, I sort of gave purgatory citing Catherine of Genoa, it's always moving forward, can you fall back? Can you commit a venial sin, say, in purgatory? No. Next question. <laughs> uh, an issue here is about, is, it, is what death does. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, we will be judged, for the de- we will be judged by the deeds we did in the body. Well, we won't have a body when we're dead. Can a, can, a, can a separated soul who is sufficiently you that it's not, for God, it's not unjust for God to punish or reward you? I mean, if the soul isn't you, then it'd be unjust for God to punish the soul for something you did. That wouldn't be fair. So there's got to be that much continuity. But as Aquinas himself would say, you're not a full person. A full person has a body. So you're not a full human being. And so the standard, you get various theological arguments, but it becomes universally agreed. Once you're dead, you can't sin. You can't do good works either. Um, so they're really, so technically, it's not, um, it's not satisfactions in purgatory. Um, it's not good deeds. But that really now becomes an issue of what do you think death does? And to what degree are you, is what you are at the moment of death what you are eternally? I'll def- I would defend that, that it's important for our freedom that at some point 
it is the last question. I mean, this is, is that your final answer? In the sense of our freedom is important. And at some point, really, we really can decide what the bed we make is. It isn't that you can change your, 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 you can change your mind tomorrow morning forever. At some point, there's no more tomorrow morning. But that, that's really more a question about death. Yes, here. Can you talk about the modern use of the plenary indulgences? Yeah, yeah. Um, plenary indulgences. Talk a bit about indulgences. As I mentioned, um, indulgences originally had nothing to do with purgatory, but it came to be applied to purgatory slowly, bit by bit, without it being quite thought, planned, so to speak. Some of, the, one of the, some of the Dominicans may know more about this than I do, but let me give my basic understanding here, particularly the difference between a plenary and a partial indulgence, both of which are a little odd. It used to be, I remember, I, I'm from, I was not raised Catholic, I'm from down on Virginia, North Carolina line, where there were hardly any Catholics at all. It was an utterly Protestant world. I remember going up to college in New Hampshire, and there was a Bible, and I opened it up. You know, if you read, you, know, you read two chapters a day for 30 days, you get so many days out of purgatory. I thought, whoa, what's this? Um... It was never that way. It was always the equivalent of that many days of penance on earth. I mean, because time doesn't work the same way. It was always an odd notion. But a, a, a partial indulgence lessens, so to speak, how hard it is to transform. Now, the difficulty is quantifying that. The official teaching now following... January 1st, 1967, there was a new papal constitution on indulgences. The notion is, is that with a partial indulgence, the, the effect of the, the penitential effect of the good deed is doubled by the indulgence. What is it to double the penitential effect of a good deed? I mean, my wife remains Protestant and is, as she herself would say, snarky. So something came up and I said this. She said, oh, it's like, it's double, it's like double coupon days at, at giant food store. Um, um, a plenary indulgence has the fo- has, removes all temporal punishments, period. But two points to be made. A plenary indulgence is only plenary, has a plenary effect, only if you are attached to no sin, even venial. Now, you'll get many different understandings of what attached to no sin, even venial means. You can get a maximal understanding in which hardly anybody isn't attached to some venial sin, or you can have a sort of minimal understanding where it's a great deal less. Um, If you are attached to some venial sin, then the plenary indulgence becomes partial. There is, however, another set of questions about other effects of purgatory, which would be the forgiveness of venial sins, but also the, the, the repairing of concupiscence. I mean, for example, I mean, the example I gave, concupiscence are acts of the, or not, it acts, Things in the self which are pre-voluntary. I mean, the voice, the envious voice in the back of my head that, you know, will sort of, some colleague gets an award and I, jerk, think. Um, That's pre-voluntary. I don't will it. I may will not to do it. So it's not a sin. Or is the repair of concupiscence taken away by a plenary indulgence? I've never read the question, but I know there's debates about the relationship of temporal punishments and the repair of concupiscence, so to speak. But that's a... That's a uh, do one of the Dominicans who would have more to say on the indulgences? Good pastor. <laughs> <laughs> the answer would be no. 
Next question. <laughs> yes. um, I am also a convert to Catholicism yeah. from growing up Protestant, and the notion of purgatory is still quite hard. Yeah, yeah right. Um, I am. I think I've had a lot of conversations with people where the notion of like being good enough for purgatory or good enough to go to heaven when yeah. purgatory comes up, and it's hard for me not to hear that as works righteousness. Salvation and works righteousness, right. and even this transformation that just happens to you. My like old Protestant brain is like, oh, that's not just happens to you; that's given to you. Yeah, through, through grace. So, could you talk a little bit about how this okay. has become? Because a really fundamental question. I mean, this is a, this is a crucial reason for why I, as a Lutheran, became a Catholic. At age. The, question. And the, the question had to do with a purgatory, uh, kind of Protestant unease with, with purgatory that's, that's sometimes hard to purge out of oneself. Um, um, and the notion, you know, why, why isn't the cross enough? Isn't Jesus fully sufficient? Why do I have to suffer some more? Um, a crucial question here is about the nature about the nature of grace. How does grace function? And again, crucial, I think, for a Catholic understanding of grace is that grace engages us as responsible, accountable beings. Grace will get me there, but it will get me there through my actions, which will be at work within me. I mean, the odd text here is... Paul, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you to will and to do. Well, which is it? Am I to work it out in fear and trembling or is it God in me doing it? Well, it's both. I mean, that's a crucial notion of the doctrine of grace. Is it grace? I mean, this is Augustine's God creates us without us, but he does not redeem us without us. Grace is at work within us. You have to have a notion here that God can be at work in you in a way which really brings about an effect but doesn't violate your freedom. That's, and that, that's, that's a metaphysical issue that's, that's tricky. Um, here's where I do make the move, which is common to a lot of recent Catholic theologians, of talking about the effects of sin. So that, yeah, but now, this is a real issue in discussing purgatory. And I admit I did it more than I'm maybe absolutely comfortable with. Is making purgatory, is purgatory rehabilitative? Sanative, curing, medicinal, or is it also judicial punishment? How do you put together the judicial and the medicinal, so to speak? Healing, but also undergoing a punishment. In the Catholic piety tradition, you often have the two tied together very closely. Isn't sometimes making satisfaction helpful? I tend to be horribly forgetful. This is just the way I am. I mean, I, this is the way I was in the first grade. I couldn't find my shoes. Where did I take off my shoes the night before? I had the foggiest notion. If I'm not paying close attention to it, I just don't remember. This drives my wife crazy. Um, she maybe been married 48 years, a long time. She's gotten used to it. And she's learned tricks to get me to you know, do things, do the same thing over and over again, blah, blah, blah. But I realized what really infuriated her was that I didn't seem to suffer from it. She wanted me to be more upset. She wanted me in pain to show that I cared. I mean, is there a way in which, you know, you do feel, you, you, I mean, let's say I've done something horrible to you. And I, you know, you forgive me, but I want to do something to make up to it for you. If I have to do something that's 
painful to me to make to show you how much I really feel like a jerk for having done it to you. That may be a punishment that actually has a kind of therapeutic effect on me, a healing effect from the judicial. Now this is thinking through how the Christian tradition has interwoven the judicial and the, so to speak, the discipline. It happens in piety all the time, uh, where, again, St. Catherine generally, she completely merges the judicial and the medicinal aspects of purgatory. Um, so that's where um, it's really the basic notion of grace at work within us, but grace doesn't happen. Grace gets us there, but by engaging us in certain ways. At least for me, that's decisive. Any more questions? Over here. Where I guess, right there. Uh, yes, so you talked about previously about the um, difficulty that some Orthodox have in accepting punishment as part of the process after death. Yeah. How does this factor into the notion held among some Orthodox about the idea of aerial tokens? Yeah, yeah, right, precisely. Um, how does, about the Orthodox, how does this relate to the aerial toll houses? If, and explain, can you, this is, this is something I know a little about, but not much. You may very well know more. T say something about the toll houses. Why don't you stand up? I'm sorry to do this to you, but I, I, I'm, I worry about making mistakes. So from my understanding, it's the idea that after death, there are a series of toll houses that one has to pass through, and I believe those individual toll houses can represent the sin or some right. sort of uh, evil deed that one did in life, and one has to pass through them in order to get to heaven. Okay, precisely. You have these toll houses. That sounds a lot like purgatory, doesn't it? <laughs> Which is what the West always says. But if you want, now let's say we have a room here of 20 Orthodox theologians, and you want to sort of throw a bomb, say toll houses. Uh, you will get some who will say this is absolutely false. It is to be utterly rejected. It's unorthodox. It's imported from the West. It's pagan. It's awful, blah, 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 blah. And others will say it's fully a part of our tradition. Um, I mean, it's one of those things... Um, where I want, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> uh, so it's one of the places where you do get an overlap of the Orthodox tradition and the Western discussion of purgatory, but it is highly controversial. Um, some of you may know the name David Bentley Hart, an Eastern Orthodox theologian who um, many people love to hate, including myself. Um, but he, for example, he will, I mean, smoke out the ears, foaming at the mouth at the word toll houses. Uh, that is absolutely horrible. Any other questions? Thank, yes. One last question. Um, so you keep mentioning like that prayer for the dead, like to keep praying because it does something, right? Yeah. And for sometimes when people are saying what it does, it's like consolation for yourself. At least this is like nowadays, like oh, it's just consolation for yourself yeah. to pray for someone. So in that. A couple of questions. Not this may come out controversial. Like when you stop praying for a particular person, yeah. In terms of like, hey, they've reached heaven, um, or like, yeah, sort of like when this, like, purgatory in heaven, like yeah. that transition, right? Um, I will pray for my parents until I die, and that's not because I think they were horrible people. It's because what we do, it's what we do for one another. And short of the last day, note that in the, I mean, a, a difference in a contemporary piety in the, in the New Testament 
is if you ask what did people in the New Testament hope for, it's, it's the kingdom of God after Christ returns. It's not so much life after death. There's very little in the New Testament about what happens to you between death and resurrection. Paul talks about, I want to be out of the body to be with Christ, but he doesn't say much about it, the way he says a lot about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, remember, God is outside of time. So my prayer, I mean, let's say my sainted mother is in heaven, and I, I do every morning. You know, I pray for, the, pray for my mother and father. Uh, God is outside of time. I mean, he, he sees my prayer today, even if my mother went directly, you know, to heaven after five hours in purgatory. I mean, so, one has to remember here, time, time is quite different once when one talks about God. Um, so the prayers might still have an effect. But now about prayer simply being for our own consolation. I would say com my own consolation is a side effect. One thing I like as a Catholic is praying for my parents. My grandparents, um, for people who've died, it means something to me. However, that's a side effect. If you ask me how prayer works, I don't know. I've never done any theological real work on it. But I've quoted it a number of times, Book of James, prayers of a good man availeth much. We are, we're in solidarity, and that makes some difference. If it's just about personal consolation, then I think of a story of Flannery O'Connor, the great Catholic writer, who once was something asked about whether the mass was just a symbol. And she said, I say, if it's just a symbol, to hell with it. <laughs> um, um, and you know, I say, if it's consolation, it's the consolation that in, this, in the solidarity that goes between the dead and the, and the living, we are still one church. The church on earth, the church in heaven, the church in purgatory, it is still one church. And we're still together in this, so to speak. And as together, we pray for each other. And that does some good, although don't ask me how. I mean, it's in the hands of God. So for me, I mean, I think this is per this personal. If it's just consolation, I'll, I'll let it go. <laughs> um, because, it, because the consolation for me at any rate is that I, my parents, my grandparents are still in this together in a certain sense. Uh, and we pray for each other. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.